The following is a paid program. Advice and opinions expressed during More Than a Movement are solely that of our hosts or guests and not those of 1017 The Truth, Good Karma Brands, Milwaukee, LLC, or Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin. Civic engagement, reproductive justice, and abortion access are all interconnected and are imperative to everyone living a quality and healthy life. This is More Than a Movement, powered by Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin. Here is your host, Carrie Noni. What's up, what's up, what's up, everybody, and welcome to More Than a Movement, powered by Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin on the new 1017 The Truth. I am your host for today, Carrie Noni, and today we're going to keep diving in on our conversation about the intersection of reproductive justice and other social justice issues. But y'all know it is Black History Month, okay? So we're also going to discuss Black history, Black futures through a reproductive justice lens, and why the work in 20. 2023 really matters okay you guys so we're gonna get right into it but first I want to introduce the guests who we have today to have these incredible discussions and needed discussions first up I'm going to introduce Sarah Nobles who has been here for almost all of the conversations that we've had with Planned Parenthood so far she is from the Be Noble group how are you doing today I am well and glad to be here thank you and we also have Tamara Thompson who has been here before as well she's a doula and reproductive justice advocate how are you again I'm well thank you thank you for having me Thank you. And we have somebody else here who is new to the group, but is not new to these streets. Okay, we have Vaughn Mays, who is an activist and a community first responder. How are you doing? He's proud to be here. Thank you. Yes, no problem. We appreciate all of you taking the time out. And so we're just going to get right started. We know we always go to you first, Sarah. So because it is Black History Month, let's begin by touching on Milwaukee's rich black history from activism to strong neighborhoods and a booming entertainment to high employment. So tell us about Milwaukee's black history during this Black History Month. Yes, yes, yes. And we're also Black 365, right? Yes, we are. Um, (laughs) So I'd like to begin by telling the listeners that reproductive justice isn't just about having reproductive health and rights. Um, It uses an intersectional approach, or I would like to say, a looking at our full uh, lives uh, approach as a guide to what we need. And I believe that um, I'm going to share what demonstrates to everybody a long, deep, vast black history in Milwaukee and in, in Wisconsin. And it will also demonstrate that we have always had a really deep understanding of our human right to exist, the impact of racism on our everyday lived experiences, and how to organize ourselves for our own protection, mm-hmm. for our own well-being. Oh, yeah, we We've had been at to. this for minutes. <laughs> yes. And I'm pretty sure what you're about to hear will be very thought-provoking. When I first like um, did the research around this, I was just really stunned. Um, at the black uh, presence in Milwaukee. So did y'all know that there was something called the Northwest Ordinance in 1787 that forbade the existence of slavery in the Northlands, which includes the Wisconsin Territory? Okay. I don't think most people would think we had such a thing, right? Right. Not in a state where we've experienced <laughs> racism at the at the level that we have. What about the fact that black people lived in Wisconsin 
since before the founding of the city of Milwaukee. That is shocking to me. That was in 1848 was when the city was founded. So before that, okay, and the presence of black people was recorded in this area even before Wisconsin became a state. So we've been we've been here. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> we really we have been everywhere <laughs> we've been here we've been yes. here and, and get this a black woman named Marianne um, Labouche now Tamara's gonna love this <laughs> she, she was well known and widely respected for her medical remedies and treatments this woman lived in Perry Duchesne where is Wisconsin. That? okay in the 1790s. So many years later, like around 1925, the Journal Sentinel actually did an article about this um, sister and named her Wisconsin's first doctor. Mm. Not Wisconsin's first black doctor. Mm -hmm. Not Wisconsin's first woman doctor. Wisconsin's first doctor. And what year was this? The, she she was there in the 1790s, but the article came out yeah. in the 1920s. Okay, wow. and it was said that she attended to people as regularly as any other physician of her day. And then the article went on to say that she would bring relief to people using something that she called her yarb tea. Mm-hmm. And at that time, yarb was the term for herbs, right? And she did that for patients for whom the other physicians, who were all white, treated people but could not cure them. Mm-hmm. But she had that power. She had it, mm-hmm. right? In 1840, there were 22 black people, only 22 black people in our city. The total population was somewhere around 1,700, and only 22 were black. Okay. Mm. So we had, I mean, as you'll hear, as I, as, I, as I share this with you, we really had quite the population uh, explosion over years to get us to, to where we are now. By 1866, we grew to about 300. But about that same time, this brother named Ezekiel Gillespie mm. won the right for black people to vote in Wisconsin. We got an election coming up. We're talking about this. This person in 18. 18- 66 um, did that. So here's the thing that I think really surprised me probably the most during my research, and that was to learn that black people lived everywhere all over our city of Milwaukee, like everywhere, right? So prior to 1950, most areas in the city were relatively unrestricted in terms of where we could live. There were people who built homes in the downtown area of Milwaukee and lived in the downtown area of Milwaukee. There were people, black people living in West Allis and Bayview. Yeah. The areas that we, you know, deemed very uh, mm-hmm. white and, you know, in the 60s had housing marches over. Um, but black people were living there at that time. And this sister paved the way. For a beautiful Vel Phillips, I know that this had to have happened, right? <laughs> so in 1918, a woman named Mabel Watson Ramey was the first black woman to get a bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin, 18, 1918, okay? Mm-hmm. And the first to enroll in Marquette's Law School. Mm-hmm. And she passed the bar in 1927. Shout out. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody who's listening knows that the more I 
our black population grew, the more restrictions we had. And, you know, that is when uh, somewhere around the 1920s that um, those covenants um, happened in our city and um, white people people decided that black people couldn't own, they couldn't lease, they couldn't occupy any homes that were in white communities. Mm -hmm. And so what we got was, you know, what was called the Negro districts. And um, that is what uh, came to be is how we got segregation. It's through these covenants. Extremely segregated in this city or in this state i should say because i don't know too many people who live outside of milwaukee or even just outside of just the milwaukee county who are black do y'all know like a lot of people out there yeah not a lot at all so that is crazy definitely a history lesson that we needed today yeah so it began and i got more for you so oh you got more okay tell me listen just tell me what you want to hear let's go on to the very next thing (laughs) that you have what more do you have for us well i would like to share um like a lot of people probably know about bronzeville or heard about about bronzeville so i'd like to share a little bit more about how that came about so i'd like to fast forward to the 1940s um the black population at that time was about nine thousand. okay people. so we moving okay. up so we're moving up we got more people <laughs> right and um then the you know uh, negro district became um bound by very specific streets so it was uh, highland avenue to the south so y'all get your get your map minds on okay walnut to the north 12th street to the west and third street to the east so that was the black district that's where we were um literally pushed to 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 live by the 1960s those boundaries had shifted some um, so now I'm alive because I was born in the 50s. Hey. Um, and <laughs> and um, that shifted where the boundaries were Keefe Avenue to the north, Juno to the south, um, the Milwaukee River to the east, and 21st Street um, to, to the west. Um, but because the um, broader communities were closed mm-hmm. to Milwaukee, we, I mean to, to black Milwaukee, we decided we needed to build our own. Um, and we had to have our own separate communities in order for our lives to be what we needed them to be and for us to thrive. Um, I don't know if y'all are aware of this, but there is something called the um, Negro Business Directory of Wisconsin. I haven't. It was a directory mm-hmm. that um, sometimes you'll hear called the Green Book. Okay. That um, book was around the country in various states and essentially helped um, black people understand where they could go and be safely, whether it was at a black establishment or whether it was at white establishments where they could go and, you know, do business with um, with white people in a way that was, you know, had relative safety. Mm-hmm. But in that book from the 50 to 1951 years, it listed 150 licensed rooming houses. So that means we were looking after the literal living of each other. Mm. So y'all know the rooming house? No, what I'm like, I need you house? to break it down so for me. So essentially, folks would have their own own home, and they would rent out a room okay. to people who didn't have... Um, so you talk about community living. Yeah. That, that, that's what was happening um, at that time. Um, there were 35 taverns, dozens of restaurants, 21 dry cleaners, 14 barbershops, 
I mean, 14 beauty shops, nine barbershops, and 11 grocery stores. A literal village of us. Attorneys, doctors, wow. dentists, entertainment venues was all in that community. Of Bronzeville. Like, like, to like Black Wall Street, like a mini... Like a mini Black Wall Street. Yeah. yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Right. So... As that neighborhood grew, so did um, the uh, population of Milwaukee. Black families migrated to Milwaukee the way that they did, you know, across the the, the country for manufacturing jobs like A.O. Smith and Alice Chalmers and uh, a host of other companies, the uh, beer companies, Mm -hmm. right? And it became the springboard for our blue collar, our middle class um, black community, which doesn't exist as much um, anymore. Right? Mm-hmm. So our population grew from about 10,000 in 1945 to 105,000 people by 1970. Do you think that had a lot to do with Bronzeville being just so popping? Everyone's like, listen, we got to head over there. That's where it's good. Well, I'm sure that that played a big role. Um, but the manufacturing jobs Those is what too, really stability. drove people mm-hmm. yeah, to come to the city because it those jobs paid you know uh, a much higher uh wage so clearly racism and poverty you know still wreaked havoc in our communities um but get this the average income for a black family in milwaukee was 19 percent higher than the u.s average in the 1970s this was the place to be look (laughs) all around we had what was called one of the best living standards in, in, in the country. And I, perfect. And th- there were issues. You know, we had mm-hmm. horrible policing and, you know, all kinds of stuff was, was you know, um, really happening. But, but, but yeah, it, it, was, it was something. And, you know, we can credit so many people for having the communities that we had, including those, you know, souls who marched 200 days consecutively around fair housing, you know, to 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 try to make sure that we were where we needed to be and where we wanted to be, you know, and in safe and in and, and decent um, and decent dwellings. Um, so I will say that much of what I shared came from a beautiful book by a dear, dear friend of mine named Dr. Sandra Jones. Aww. And the book is titled Voices of Milwaukee um, Bronzeville. And y'all should this this book is chock full of so much information about um, about our city. So get y'all a copy. And then I would like to send out a special shout out to one of Milwaukee's favorite historians, Reggie Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So many of us credit Reggie with enlightening black people about our history. And he had a stroke a few months ago. But I spoke to him recently, and he said to make sure to tell everybody that not only was he really recovering well, he was recovering in ways that people didn't even, doctors didn't even expect him to. Um, so he wanted to make sure that, that, that I say that. Yes. Um, yeah. And I'd like to add that, you know, so much of what Reggie taught us explains so much about black people in present, you know, daytime. Um, and even though it wasn't a, a utopia in so many ways, it was so much better than what we have now. 
Um, and Reggie also taught us that the destruction of our neighborhoods really disrupted our communities mm -hmm. in big, major ways um, and disrupted communities that we worked so hard to build, so hard to build, um, which explains, you know, the current conditions that that we have. Yes. That was a word. Yeah. <laughs> you had us all just looking at you like, oh, oh my well, goodness. It was a joy to like read um, every line on every page. I was pretty, was pretty blown away. And where can you get the book? So, you know, I'm pretty sure it is sold. Um, I will have to look that up up but i'm pretty sure it's sold online okay. so so people should you know um google they should look up voices <laughs> of milwaukee brownsville okay and we could find that book everybody go get the book because i'm enlightened already this is just the first segment right now we have sarah posing with the book love it <laughs> but we're gonna get into Miss Tamara and Mr. Vaughn in the next segment and we're going to talk about violence prevention and community safety because I feel like that kind of goes into what you were just saying how listen Milwaukee is different now than what it used to be and so we're going to figure out what's really going on out here in these streets and how can we change it or how can we fix it and how can we be a part of the solution. So this is more than a movement powered by Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin on the new 1017 The Truth and we'll be right back. You're listening to More Than a Movement powered by Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin on the new 1017 The Truth, The Truth app and 1017thetruth.com. Welcome back, everyone. You are tuned into More Than a Movement, powered by Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin on the new 1017 The Truth. It's your girl, Carrie Noni, and I am with Tamara Thompson, doula and reproductive justice advocate, and Vaughn Mays, activist and community first responder. And of course, you all just heard from Sarah Noble from Be Noble. Listen, gave us everything that we needed, gave me everything I needed, because I didn't even know all of that history of Milwaukee. There's a lot about Milwaukee that I don't know. So it's love that for me right now. <laughs> so Sarah just gave us some points of history that have obviously changed dramatically here in the city. How Milwaukee is just a completely did a whole 180, not a 360, because y'all be messing that up. It's not a 360, it's 180. But we know that one issue on the minds of black people right now, especially in Milwaukee, is violence. And in every single form, from partner violence to community violence. So Tamara, from a reproductive justice perspective, can you tell us about the impact of violence experienced by black women here in the city? Definitely. So in order to do the discussion justice, we have to think about the micro and the macro, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk a little bit about state violence, right? Obstetric violence, interpersonal yes. violence, and where that all comes from, and how that relates to reproductive justice. And just to kind of recap, reproductive justice is framed as the ability to have a child, to not have a child, and the right to have to parent that child in a safe environment. And so while it does seem sort of like that is a individual choice, 
decision, mm -hmm. that it actually has a lot to do with the relationships that people have with the community that they live in, their state, the laws, and their family, and the circumstances that are true for them as far as like resources and the environment as it is where they're born, right? Mm -hmm. And so when violence enters into that equation, a number of things happen from a reproductive justice standpoint, that when there is violence or the threat of violence, a psychological process takes place where a person feels not safe. They have to move in a different sort of way. And under the threat of violence, there's this moving different out of fear, right? Yeah. And there's a biological process to that, right? When people are in fear, their brain chemistry releases hormones. And we're talking a little bit about... Um, I think there's a word, uh, catecholamines. It's a hormone, a stress hormone that tells you that you're not safe and you're in this fight or flight, this survival yep, just mode, about right? To say that, fight yes. Or flight. And if you're mm -hmm. in this state of mind of a very base level that I have to do anything it takes to survive by any means necessary, we're not really at our true full selves, right? And so if a person is pregnant or wants to become pregnant, right? Because we're talking about the desire to have a child, to not have a child, and parent a child in a safe environment. But when there's violence in that, then this person makes a decision to not become pregnant because they don't know if they can guarantee the safety of that child, mm -hmm. right? And if a person is pregnant and experiencing violence, then those ketocholamines, right, those hormones that are rushing through their body, they also affect that unborn child, that person, right? And not only do we have to think about them, right, but here, here's something I'll tell you. I was born in 1983. My mother was born in 1957, right? And her mother carried her, at that point, my mother had the raw materials in order to form me, right? Mm -hmm. So that means in a way, the materials that it takes to make me were also present in 1957, even though I was born in 83. And what that means is the conditions by which my grandmother carried my mother, right? And the stress that she was subjected to could tell her that you're not safe. And the placenta will give out early. Mm. And now we're talking about preterm birth, right? Yeah. And majority of the reasons why black African-American babies don't survive and make it to their first birthday is they're born too soon and they're born too small. And so there is research that tells us that there's this maternal health crisis, black infant mortality and black maternal morbidity and all these things that are obviously being reported about and talked about and print about. And, and there's a lot of fear that goes into that, right? So that's somewhat of a threat of violence, right? Mm -hmm. And when you have people that are making their decisions, fear-based decisions to flee a domestic violence relationship, to enter into a domestic violence shelter, or if they are sending their children to school and there's a threat that their child might be attacked on the way to the bus stop or a stray bullet might hit them, or they send their husband, their boyfriend to the corner store and there might be some activity going on there where he's not safe. They might get pulled over and we might see a situation similar to what happened in Memphis happen to them. That affects the person's right to have a child to not have a child and to parent that child in a safe environment. And so what we see at that time is when all of the babies that are born too soon, too small, and don't make it, what that is include, our response? Would that include miscarriages as well? Absolutely. The hormones and everything? Yes, yes. And so the, the environment, the, the womb, so to speak, is a very important place. That environment needs to be conducive to growing and nurturing that young life. And when it is a place of chaos, when it is a place of fear and fight or flight, then that unborn person is being subjected to those things. And then 
talking about epigenetics, that our cells actually have memory, mm-hmm. right? There are some studies about the cells having memory, and it can be replicated in, in animals. I believe they gave a strong smell and a loud sound to some mice, and they did not allow the other mice to smell or hear that sound. Mm-hmm. But the offspring of the, ch- of the mice who had been exposed to that had fear-based reactions and running away and were absolutely adverse to the smell and sound, right? And this can be replicated in humans where we're looking at what are the gene sequences that are interrupted by violence when people are making decisions and their awareness that they're not safe, that their children are not safe, that their partner is not safe. And this goes back, obviously, generations. But when we're in a system where we know that we can make corrections for those things and that we can um, stand in a place to to respond to those, but we do not have the funds, we don't have the systems put in place, we don't have school and education and resources that allow us to come together and solve those problems for ourselves. That's the intersection of how violence and reproductive justice really come to a head. From what you just said, I think of generational trauma, too. It's like it just keeps getting passed down from one to the next to the next. It's like, where does that cycle end? How does that cycle end? Yes. Yeah. Okay. so with Vaughn, you work a lot with the youth and there are a lot of young people who who get pregnant as well and have to deal with their hormones and their responses to, okay, what am I going to do now? And just a a whole lot of things. But with you, Vaughn, there are also deep concerns about the community violence and the experiences of our young people. And so since you work with them a lot and you know a little bit of what's in their mind Mm -hmm. better than I would say I would know. Uh, Can you tell us what you and other activists are seeing that everyone in our community should kind of know about? So much has just been discussed and she bring like some very dope points that I don't think a lot of people consider when you talk about DNA and how memories and and different things are. That's the story of black people. Yeah. Um, And and I can give an example of some of the stuff that we find strange um, or even some of the stuff that we find like our culture or things that, that, that are attached to us. Um, for instance, I used to think people with face tattoos were like the craziest people ever. But if you look back in our history, you'll see where it came from. That's not anything new. We did that before. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the stuff that we do is memories and things transferred in DNA that are man- re-manifesting. And we have no idea that this happened before. Um, so taking that into account, when you talk about our young people, um, and when she, you know, when you bring up, uh, you know, like studies in animals and things of that nature, right? Um, if you feed uh, animals something that's poisonous, right? They, uh, through genetics, a lot of them will build up a um, resistance, resistance or immunity to it mm-hmm. after a while, right? So they can continue on, evolve. Yeah, I think. What we see with our young people, of course, is, um, you know, we have been through so much trauma, right? And a lot of that trauma, a lot of folks older, like my age and older, have a more, um, we are used to either uh, the fight or flight or the just stay out of the way and, and coward type of type of deal. Our young people have those traumas, but they react to it um, in, a, in a pure fight. Uh, way mm-hmm. and that it can be a genetic thing um, that we are passing down uh, and and you know just a, just the attitude in them and the aura I, I kind of you know starting with me like a lot of things that um, young people uh, were doing when I was coming up um, I was a little bit different um, I 
ask questions. I pushed the envelope. I, I, I did not let people mistreat me. You know what I mean? I did not stand for any of that. And so um, seeing that in a larger part of our society with our young people now, uh, and again, it, it's not always that bad thing. It's, it's not what you do. It's how what it's not what you do. It's how you do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they just need guidance. They don't understand what they're doing, right? That energy can be channeled into looking different. But when you grow up scared of everything, right, um, and you hurt the people that are closest to you, we are segregated. You know, when people talk about black on black crime. Uh, a lot of us understand that's a kind of made-up thing because mm-hmm. nobody else has that title. Right. You know, you yeah. hurt the people who are close to you. If you're segregated, you live around who you look like, right? Mm-hmm. right. So those are the people you're going to end up hurting. And so um, no one else carries that that title or that stigma besides us. But again, when you see things like, for instance, um, I can't even watch a movie without looking at what I'm looking at, right? Um, when you see things like... Django, where two black men are handed a hammer and they have to fight to the death for somebody's entertainment. That happened for real. Mm-hmm. And so, who's like, when you do that to a mass of people, right, that genetics that passes down, uh, when you talk about the Willie Lynch and all of that, those are real things. It, it's, it's literally manufactured and built for us to be pissed off and for us to take it out on each other. And until we do something, um, again, it, it always bothers me to see our women, our children, um, not only at risk for all the other ills that we got to deal with, the segregation, the racism, the economic depression uh, or oppression, um, but then we have to deal with being dysfunctional as a community um, and, and, a, and a race in, in total um, just because of how things are designed. We are not, it's, it's, it's kind of weird to say we are not allowed to do something, right? But it kind of is that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, one, we have to have a real deep self-assessment um, as as a community and as a people, as individuals first, because that's how I got to where I, I am very much so um, doing so much self-assessment and figuring out, you know, wh- what my traumas are and how I respond to things. Um, but that's I'm one person. Yeah. Right. Um, and with those traumas and a lot of that stuff going unchecked, unnoticed, un. Uh, attended to, um, it's, it's very difficult to even start uh, a conversation um, about how we change it. And I always say, we have never had a normal in this country. Mm-hmm. So until we get to a place where we can start what normal is, then we're going to continue to see a lot of the stuff that we're seeing. So how do you, well, I don't know if there's even an answer to this, but how do you get someone to want to do that self-assessment for themselves? Because, you know, you're saying, well, I had to look at me and see how I am and what were my traumas so I can try to, like, fix those, obviously, so they don't get passed down. But how do you get someone else to want to do that? By taking that control. Um, she's You're a doula, right? Absolutely. And that is us taking the priority and the, the stance to take on that work ourselves and not leave it to clearly practices that we don't succeed in a lot of times we have they say we have a uh, some of the worst infant mortality rates than even other countries that people consider way worse than mm-hmm. in america right and that's not an accident especially yeah. just black women like right. infant mortality right. it's completely but, different but look at what we live in and what we what we have to deal with and the stresses and all that is a reason why that happens right and so um t- 
to the, the first thing of it, like I said, is to, um, to to be able to get people to the space where we think it's possible that we can take on up that work yes. um, and, and take control of our own destiny. Um, and, and that's what literally what Comforce is and what, what I do. Um, you know, and, and you can speak more to it, what, what you were going to say. Yeah, I think it, it requires a collective responsibility that I will make a commitment to my community and the people within it that I'm, I'm going to respond to their needs. And what that looks like is a, a shift eventually happens, right? If I uh, see a pregnant person at a grocery store and I just think nothing of it and I walk past them, maybe I look them in the eye, maybe I don't, it's a, tif- a totally different reaction than if I look them in the eye and I say, you're beautiful. Mm-hmm. Look how you're carrying that baby. When's baby do? You're doing great. Look, your skin glowing, right? And they're going to walk a little bit taller, right? Mm-hmm. And that comes from a sense of kinship, a, kin- uh, a connection, a sense of love, right? And, and also it starts from that particular point where you might have someone who is pregnant and maybe they, don't, they didn't want to be, but they're going to go through this process. They're going to decide what they're going to do, how they're going to get all the things together, right? And if someone says to them, I will help you, that changes the trajectory of how they care for the resulting child, right? Mm -hmm. So you have someone that's been invested in, and they will in turn invest in that child and spend more time and be more patient, especially you were talking earlier, Sarah, about plant medicine, right? And that's that's coming from our old ancestral place of just being a healer, right? That if I make it important to bring you herbs after you've given birth, and I'm saying this is for your healing, right? Then that mother, when she sees that baby's running nose, and she's saying, well, I can't do Robitussin, I can't do, th- we're going to look at some herbs. What herbs can I do? And now the mother is a healer. Mm-hmm. She's a healer to her household. She's a healer to her neighbor. She's a healer to her community. And that's how you break that chain. And eventually, as children grow up, we're talking about comprehensive sex ed, right? Is to name the body parts in a way that's not shameful. And people are able to comprehend how their body works in a way that's from a strength-based perspective and not shame. Mm-hmm. Not my body is ugly. Not my body is inadequate. But my body is beautiful and is powerful. Yeah. And these are some childbearing hips or whatever we might want to call it is coming from a place of shifting how we see ourselves and how we see our relationships with other people. Mental oppression is the worst thing. Like when you have someone's mind, you have everything about them. Right. And, mm-hmm. and that is so much of what we are seeing. Um, the American dream is to assimilate. And to do things that are not of our nature, we come from a village. This is n- this is not built for a village, right? And you know, someone asked a question on a different radio station. They said, "Do we take advantage of the segregation? We are the only ones who don't." And we, it's almost like we can't because when we try to, when we talk about Black history, when we talk about um, you know wanting to do for ourselves, we get made to feel ashamed and like we're doing something wrong, right? But everybody else does that. They take care of each other. They take care of their own. Their own is first, right? Um, And that is such a huge barrier to struggle with. I grew up in Mississippi, and I will tell you, like, um, uh, Reggie will will have said, has said, um, you know, this place is uh, likened to Mississippi. They call it Mississippi. It has a, and and it it is very different in the racism and how it's done, right? Here is so mental. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, You'll you'll be friends with somebody for fifty years, and then one day they'll just call you the N word, and you know, and you're Where'd like, that come "What? Where my friend all this time?" No. Yeah. Um, and the microaggressions too. It's it's mental, and we are so trapped in it. 
we spend so much time like trying to be everything else but black, trying to be friends with everybody aside from each other, and and it's like encouraged to be that way. Um, and it's you know it's it's really unfortunate. But like I said, once we can can collectively come back to a uh, a unified thought process of community village wise like how yeah. do we fill in the gaps for one another right then we we could start to address a lot of this stuff a whole lot easier yeah sarah you wanted to add something i just wanted to say you know i'm 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 confident that most of the people listening are younger than me and i would encourage the younger than me's listening to encourage the elders who are like me mm-hmm. and and say to the elders what it means to another person younger to um, be viewed as someone important as Tamara was speaking to about, you know, seeing, you know, um, you know, folks carrying babies and addressing them. Um, but like, you know, you see, you know, a, a brother sagging, have a have a have glee on your face. When you, you know, uh, uh, approach them and approach them, say, hey, how you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in a gas station and you're standing, you know, behind, you know, this brother who's sagging, you know, it does make a difference. I promise y'all, as someone who um, is completely whitehead, it's no, you know, like, no, there's no, like, mystery about, you know, that the fact that I'm, I'm older mm-hmm. when, when young people see me. And I can tell you, I have never had a young person address me negatively when I say, hey, baby, how you doing today? Yeah. Had a brother have a whole conversation with me about a head wrap I had on That's with a so completely cute. gold grill, you know, pants almost to his knees, <laughs> you, you, you know. But we, we had this exchange on Christmas Day with his music playing so loud mm-hmm. it almost like blew out my, my friends, you know, how mm-hmm. <laughs> homes windows. But but this person is a person. A human being and the connection that we had, it was like, hey, Merry Christmas. You know, we had that, you know, even we had that for, you know, even though it was for that moment, it, it, it does matter. And we, we, we really need to figure out how to do that. And that is a going back because mm-hmm. I can tell you young people had a connection mm-hmm. to the elders in their community. Mm-hmm. They had relationships with the elders in the community. It was not, you know, this, you know, looking down you know or noses up in some dignified ugly kind of way they actually still do if you a lot of young people in social media tell you they are their granny is like the most important person to them oh for sure for sure for sure and a lot for sure and it actually is a lot of times the catalyst of what causes a behavior change or anger process with them once they lose that person, right? Yeah, a lot of them are raised by them. And (laughs) I hate when people say our kids don't have no morals or values. They do. Mm -hmm. They will respect the person who they know respect them. Mm -hmm. If you treat them like a human being, they won't, they will not disrespect you. Mm -hmm. They, our kids read energy and and we have been tricked into looking down on ourselves and each other. Right. And we carry that energy with each other like, oh, they from this part of town or oh, they dress like that. Like and, and people pick up on that energy. You know what I mean? So, again, like when we start to shift our focus and, and stop taking on these mindsets and ideologies of other outside people, how they look at us. And now we look at each other like that. 
um, it, again, makes it makes so much of a difference. Like people really have our young people messed up. Like, yeah, you know, it's so easy to relate. It's so it's if all it's humanity. Like, who hasn't been hungry before? Who hasn't, you know, been a, a abused or or sad or you know what I mean? But it, it don't always look the same. Like that was me. I I connect with them so well because it was me. I was a homeless teenager. I had to do you know stuff that i didn't want to do and stuff that was crazy to in my mind to survive and maintain you know i knew it was wrong and i didn't want to do it but who gonna take care of me how i'm gonna eat tomorrow you know what i mean and when you take like the people the elders in particular people who who saw that in me like this is a nice young man like he's not really like that let me give you the job this job right you ain't gotta mm-hmm. sign no application just come in here you come to work that kept me you know, on a straight and narrow when people looked out for me like that. And as a, a 35 year old man in this work for 10 years, it bothers me when I don't have people who were doing this before me who give me encouragement or who look out for me or who tell me different things. Like, it seemed like even a lot of our elders, you know, we have this thing where we hoard leadership and we don't want to see yes. other people succeed or get to where we, it's like the pick yourself up by your bootstraps. I made it so you made it. Like, we do it to that. each other now. I say that all the time that, like, listen, you need to pass the baton. Please do. Because if we don't have anyone showing us the ropes on how to do anything, we're all just going to be walking around lost just trying to figure it out and taking the wrong ways when we don't have to do that. I'm an adult and I feel like that. I'm like, come on, man. You could have told, told me I was bumping my head five years ago. Like, exactly. You had the information. Just, you know. Just so I appreciate. I appreciate when black people look out for black people, especially our elders. Yes. I love that. I have so many questions for you. You had a comment? <laughs> yes. I was going to say that, that, that building on that is something that's really central to why I move the way that I move is the, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. One of the things that they did is they fed the children in their neighborhoods, right? Mm-hmm. And they had all of these different aspects that they wanted to move in in tandem with those other things, that we wanted to be in charge of um, our health care. We wanted to be in charge of our food. We wanted to be in charge of the education system and what the children are learning. And I really think that that's the blueprint. Like somebody already did the work for us Mm -hmm. and and we got to try to go back and get what was lost in the in the spirit of Sankofa, right? And when we're talking about young people and violence and not understanding things and where they get that from, where they witness it from, there's a huge opportunity for Sankofa to be a part of that conversation. We need to get them involved, okay? <laughs> we need to get them on board. But I want to continue this conversation, but you know, there is an election coming up. So it's important to talk about civic engagement and how social justice and our vote directly impacts the reproductive justice movement. So we are going to get into that on the other side. You are tuned into more than a movement powered by Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin on the new 1017 The Truth. This is more than a movement powered by Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin on the new 1017 The Truth, The Truth app and 1017thetruth.com. All right, everybody, we are back. You are tuned in to more than a movement powered by Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin on the new 1017 The Truth. And we're about to get into our civic engagement section with Miss Sarah Noble. So, Sarah, we know that voting or even having the right person in office isn't all that we need for safe neighborhoods, family supporting jobs and quality health care. 
and having people to represent our best interest in government plays a big role in getting the justice we seek. So we have to talk about the upcoming primary election, which is on Tuesday, February 21st. That is coming up very, very fast. So Sarah, can you tell us more about that? I know you have some information for us. Uh, Absolutely. So let's begin with info about early voting. So early voting for this primary election continues to today, and voters can go to the Midtown Shopping Center Center. They can go to the Zeidler Municipal Building that's on Broadway. And then you can go to a number of libraries in the city from Zablocki, Good Hope, Mitchell Street, Villard, and Washington Park. Um, it's just really important for people to know that today is the last day for early, early voting. But if you need to return your ballot, you have that ballot in hand, the Election Commission really recommends that you do not place um, that ballot in the mail at this time um, because for fear that it may not um, reach um, uh, where it's supposed to go uh, in time. It's also important for voters to know that they must personally drop off their absentee ballot unless they require assistance due to a disability. And you can return your absentee ballot in person at all of the early voting sites that I mentioned. And if you're not able to return it today, you can also take it to the Election Commission office, which is located in the City Hall. Um, but you can only do that on Monday um, or Tuesday. And if you don't early vote, as always, you can vote um, the primary election on Election Day, Tuesday, February 21st. It's important to know that the polls are open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. And y'all be sure to bring your photo ID. So if you don't know where to vote and you need other voter information, you can really simply just call the Election Commission at 414-286-VOTE. That's 414-286-VOTE. Or you can find out any election information online at My Vote Wisconsin. And that website address is myvote.wi.gov. And you can also find out what's on, um, even what's on your ballot. So um, regarding the Wisconsin um, Supreme Court, everyone will have that race on their ballot. Um, Other races really depend on where you live, whether or not those are on your ballot um, also. And I just want to say really quickly that the Wisconsin Supreme Court is a nonpartisan um, seat which really means that candidates running for the Supreme Court don't declare and they don't claim like any political party. And it's important for people to know that it has all official power, meaning jurisdiction over all of the courts in Wisconsin. And they even decide which cases they, you know, actually want to review. And something very major that people should always um, should also take um, into consideration is that the justices are elected for 10 year terms. Um, so that means that their decisions become the law of the state. So, you know, clearly those decisions have a very powerful and long term impact on our civil rights. Um, so we know people want their full um, voting rights and the power and the freedom to control their own bodies and their own um, lives. So it's important for us to remember the power of our vote. And if it was not powerful, voter suppression wouldn't be a tactic to stop us from voting. So y'all go out there and get that vote on. 
Yes. And again, that is the primary election on Tuesday, February 21st. Yes. Literally in a couple of days. And you can head over to myvote.wi.gov, right? That's right. All right. Make sure y'all go ahead and get it done. You already know it's important. So go ahead and do it. Yes. For our final segment, we will discuss the black history of engagement, cooperatives, and mutual aid societies and their impact on well-being and their role in reproductive justice. You are listening to More Than a Movement, powered by Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin on the new 101.7 The Truth. You're listening to More Than a Movement, powered by Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin on the new 101.7 The Truth, The Truth app, and 1017thetruth.com. Welcome back, everybody. We are in our last segment. It's been, what does Tori Lowe say? It's been a powerful conversation. (laughs) I love when he says that. Um, And we have been discussing reproductive justice, violence, prevention, and community safety. We got a nice history lesson in the beginning of this entire interview discussion. And it has just been so enlightening for me. And so now we are about to get into Black History of Engagement. And I am with Vaughn May still and Tamara Thompson. And so, Tamara, I'm going to send this first question over to you. So this month we celebrate Black History. Of course, it's February Black History Month. But with that, there is a history of engagement and co-ops in the black community. So can you discuss the history of this? Sure, I can give a stab at it. So I think as soon as people of African descent oriented themselves on this continent and decided where the power was and where is their relationship to that power, there's been a collective organizing that's always happening from the time of slave uh, revolts to the time of activism and getting laws passed. All of these different things have always been um, looking at what we can do to change laws and to be involved. So that level of engagement, even before there was a history of uh, enslavement, before the Revolutionary War, in fact, there were people who were looking for ways to um, buy their own freedom after indentured servitude and looking for ways to establish schools, establish colleges, run for office, vote on all of those things. So there's a, a history, what we could now call the black radical tradition of people always engaging into those systems and figuring out ways that they can make improvements for themselves and for others. Um, and so that that protection of our collective ability to self-determine really comes from a place where people are pooling their resources together and they're reallocating or redistributing those resources amongst themselves and for that to be a collective elevation. And we see that across the South with stores, with um, farms, with produce, with owning goods and services and providing services. We see that in the East, on the East Coast as well. And even throughout areas where... um, People were involved in the military, like the Buffalo Soldiers. They were definitely involved in their own fate in what was happening with the United States conflict with the indigenous peoples. So there's always been this tradition of engaging and understanding where our relationship is to the power and how do we maneuver that to our advantage. Now, Vaughn, where would you say Milwaukee is with being engaged in our community? There's a lot of engagement all the time. We have so many conversations. We have so many 
discussions and debates and and all of that um i think the power lies in the in the in the action of it because so many of those conversations never lead into an actual change right like so having groups and people who like see that we can't leave this stuff up to just talking about it or leave it up to people who keep making promises to do something about it take the information and, and make changes like we are the change we are becoming the change and i think that's um what was described just now um happening nationally where black folks are are starting to um one break out of this this you know cycle of of uh it has to be me or um you know not doing anything to to really pulling ourselves together and, and um, addressing some of those trust factors and things of that nature to um, conjoin resources, conjoin efforts. Um, and, and it's been, uh, you know, definitely a, a, a long time and even more powerful. When we first came here, they didn't take everybody from the same place, right? So you have folks that spoke different languages. You have sp- folks who um, had different elements of our history um, that we blended together and shared uh, you know those things to to equal up to the, the the woman that you spoke about, the black woman you spoke about from Prairie Duchene, who is the first doctor of this this state. Um, that knowledge came from um, many 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 folks before before, before her, um, and was shared and passed down, and, and it and it um, manifested into what we saw there. So um, most definitely, uh, there is so much engagement. There is so much. Um, work being done um, it just it, it, it comes down to what folks intent is and, and mm-hmm. what the, um, the the end goal or vision is because again the American history is to you know one enrich oneself and worry about oneself um, but um, when, when folks have community and village in mind like things go the way that they're supposed to go oh, so yeah. From my organization personally, I want to talk a little bit about what it means to take responsibility and really engage in mutual aid, right? So the pandemic came down. We're starting to hear news about we need to not go to work. We need to not go to school. Things are happening of that sort. And among midwives and birth workers and doulas, the conversation was, is there going to be a baby boom? Like people are going to be at home and people are going to, you know, you know, sometimes <laughs> the sexual healing, it just happens. Listen. You know what I'm saying? And, and as a result of that, will people have unintended pregnancies? Will people have a need for supplies? And so Maroon Calabash really did dispatch a network of doulas and birth workers. If people needed condoms, if people needed the plant B pill, if people needed resources and other things like diapers, we made a point to respond to all of those needs, including the people that were parenting, including the people who had pregnancy release if they decided they did not want to carry a pregnancy we made sure that we had something for everyone whether it was a gift card to pick and save and they could get some diapers or if they needed those healing herbs that's what it means to pull our resources together and respond to a need of people in a time of crisis that's that's what it really means that i'm responsible for her for him for all of us and we have something that we can put into the pot you might have the beans i might have the rice she might have the the greens we're going to bring it all together and we're going to distribute that so everybody can eat so where will people be able to get more information about what it is that you both do and if they want to join in with you both in this fight of, hey, we need to create this village again. We need to have this mutual aid, as you guys were just speaking about. Where can they go or how can they get in touch with the work that you all do? 
Absolutely. MaroonCalabash.com. Um, there's a website. There's all kinds of information there and resources for people who are looking for um, connection to other agencies that do um, reproductive justice work. If they're looking to read up on it, if they're looking for services, especially if they're pregnant, um, they can go to our website. They can get familiar with who we are and what we're doing. And there's also, you know, coming up in the spring when the snow melts a little bit. Mm -hmm. We want to get the kids outside into the farm. We want to get them to touch dirt and soil and understand that you have a relationship with fresh fruit and vegetable and understanding like there are so many connections to reproductive justice and our health and our well-being that we want everyone to take part in that. So maroonkalabash.com, there's a lot of information there. Uh, For me, you can look me up on Facebook as Vaughn L. Mays, V-A-U-N-L-M-A-Y-E-S, but more importantly, Community Task Force MKE, which is most definitely a mutual aid and coalition of of folks that come together. I I hope to add you uh, as an important piece that uh, we most definitely... um, you know, do that work, but we don't specialize in that work. And I like to have folks who specialize in that work so that we can learn from them and that we can lean on them um, and, and elevate them in that in that expertise um, of those fields. So, you know, Comforce, um, you know, we, we it's a lot of different ways that folks can, um, you know, contribute to that. Right now I'm trying to put together a string of um, trainings for our members and for people who may be interested in in joining this work. Um, In particular, we're having a lot of conversations with the fire department. Um, We're putting together some CERT trainings. They have some of our people actually going through an EMT training um, Mm. in a partnership with that. Um, We are looking to do CPR, Stop the Bleed, all this different stuff so we can equip young people and adults uh, with these skills so that we don't have to wait for EMS, we don't have to wait for law enforcement. We can take on some of these things ourselves. Um, And so they can, you know, folks have the ability to train. Um, If folks want to support or or sponsor some of the training or equipment that we, you know, need to go out and respond to some of this stuff. Um, Or if folks just want to help share posts and you know, spread the word or um, anything like that. Um, donate any of that. Um, definitely come look us up. What about you, Sarah? Where can where can we find you? You can go to benoblegroup.com. B E N O B L E group, all one word, and um, you will see all of the work that I am engaged in. I work very closely with uh, beautiful human beings like are sitting around this um, table having this conversation um, here today. It's all of what the Be Noble group is uh, about. It's like connecting with individuals um, so that we can have uh, good collective work. Well, I appreciate all three of you for being here today. Again, this is Sarah Noble, Vaughn Mays, and Samara Thompson. More than a movement powered by Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin. I have been your host, Carrie Noni, and I hope you all learned something today. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will catch you next month. The proceeding was a paid program. Advice and opinions expressed during More Than a Movement are solely that of our hosts or guests and not those of 1017 The Truth, Good Karma Brands Milwaukee LLC, or Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin.